So can I get you just your first name? Chuck. Denise. Do you use social media yourself, sir? I do. Uh, what accounts do you? What kind of accounts do you use? Mm, I rarely use Facebook. Uh, that's about. That's really about it as far as social media. Uh, primarily just Facebook. No Twitter. Um, not on Twitter. Um, sometimes I'll go on to, you know, read things, but I don't have my own personal account. I think it's a good thing. Um, definitely, I mean, the primarily purpose, I think, was to um, stay in touch with people or find people, um, connect with people. Um, I, you know, I think it's a good thing in general. It has its, its uh, you know, I guess its strong points. Uh, so we have a campaign that we run every March. It's Brain Injury Awareness Month mm. that is trying to get people to think ahead. If we could use social media um, to help let people know about traumatic brain injury, how to prevent it, how to know when they have one, and how to get it treated, would you say that'd be a good thing? Of course. Um, it's, it's definitely a good thing to, to, uh, to, to help get the word out there, you know, if you can do that. I'd be happy to help. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the TBI Family, a bi-weekly podcast for caregivers of service members and veterans who've experienced traumatic brain injuries. This program is produced by the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, otherwise known as DIVBIC. I'm your new host, Dr. Scott Livingston. In this episode, we'll talk about Brain Injury Awareness Month and how you can use your personal social media to spread the word about traumatic brain injury. But first, DIVBIC and the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center's National Intrepid Center of Excellence, also known as NICO, are trying to learn about, well, you. A study called Health-Related Quality of Life in Caregivers of Service Members with Military-Related Traumatic Brain Injury has been underway since 2012. The TBI family's producer, Terry Welch, spoke with Dr. Lewis French, Deputy Director of Operations at NICO and the Principal Investigator on the study, about this 15-year-long investigation into how the act of caregiving can affect caregivers and their families. Could you tell me a little bit first about how the 15-year caregiver study came about, how it was started, who mandated it? Sure. Um, a number of years ago, Congress made a very wise decision in that it made sense to investigate um, the outcomes of people that suffered traumatic brain injury in the military. And they realized that when they uh, made that mandate for a research study like that, that they needed to look at a multitude of aspects around outcome. And they realized that one of the important things that uh, had unfortunately been too little studied was the impact of the injury on the family. So it specifically said in the congressional language that they wanted to have uh, part of the study look at the impact on the family. We decided that that would be one of the, the key parts of what we were doing in this overall study. And so out of the really four aspects of the study, 
um, that uh, has a prominent part. That caregiver study also uh, bleeds over into uh, our work with the, the VA because we, like with all of the portions of this, we realize that uh, our partners in the VA are going to be the ones that are providing care for many of these people um, over the rest of their lifespan. And we want to make sure that as they transition from one part of their care system to another, that we are capturing um, the needs that they perceive, how things change as, uh, as they age or um, as they go into a different care system, what their needs are and, uh, and how they're different. You have a, a report to Congress that's coming up soon. It's kind of a halfway point report. Is that what you yes. call it? Yeah. So I know that a lot's already come out of this study. Some, there's been some publications. What have you learned so far? So uh, the good news about this is that for um, many individuals, they are uh, getting the services and things that they need. Uh, the unfortunate part of the story is many people still feel an, un, an unmet need. And uh, as you would expect, for some of the people that have an unmet need, it's not that the system doesn't have what they want, but in some cases they don't know how to access that particular service. So it becomes really a question of education um, in, in terms of making sure that the people that need something are, um, are expressing that to the people who can help provide that and, um, and get those two sides connected. We, we know that the process of being a caregiver is uh, an immense burden for many people. Sometimes patients, um, depending on what their, their needs are, can, their, those needs can span the physical, the behavioral, um, the emotional parts of the spectrum. And having a great number of needs has an impact on the family. There's no, no doubt about that. We shouldn't be surprised about this because I think if you look at caregivers of individuals with any kind of chronic illness, we see those things too. People uh, who are caregiving, um, people with um, chronic medical illnesses, people who uh, have a loved one with, with dementia or um, other sorts of problems as they age, all of those things require an immense amount of, of energy and time and um, emotional energy to, to make sure that um, their loved one's needs are met. So that's, I think, the, one of the big parts that we've, that we've learned from this. And as I said, it's not a big surprise about this. One of the other things that we quickly learned about this is that the existing instruments out there in order to assess a person's needs were not really available. Uh, we had a fortunate partnership uh, with some folks at the University of Michigan who are real experts in developing questionnaires to assess needs of people um, of all sorts. And so we, using some very sophisticated techniques, have worked with them on developing some questionnaires to better assess the, the needs of caregivers. 
the most important first step in that was to get some focus groups together to get groups of caregivers together and for us to sit there and talk to them and listen to them and and just hear their stories and what they thought uh, the need their needs were and what the needs of their loved ones were so we could develop um, banks of of items questionnaires that we could use for this and once we were able to do that and, and get things psychometrically sound we were then able to go back to these groups again and and show them to them and, and actually test them out and make sure that what we developed was really useful in terms of developing in terms of what their their needs were were you part of the focus group project yourself or um, as the principal investigator on that I was not uh, personally attending most of those uh, focus groups we had some of them that were held locally in the in the DC area we had some that were held up at University of Michigan but I did not sit in on many of those, uh, although I uh, very eagerly um, followed the results of those and, and looked at the transcripts. It was, it was actually quite an emotional experience for me uh, in, in hearing some of the sad stories out there. It's, um, unfortunately, there's uh, a lot of people who uh, are in real distress. I'm guessing that most of the folks that we've talked to are um, people with moderate to severe TBI then, or people who consider themselves caregivers in this aspect. So it's a mix. Uh, you know, the majority of people that have been hurt in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and related kinds of conflicts have been hurt through blast explosion. And uh, the sad reality is, is that when you're close to something that blows up, there's lots of ways that you can get hurt. And so besides the traumatic brain injury aspects of things, people often have comorbid physical injuries, sometimes uh, injuries to their, to their face, their sensory organs, their, their eyes, their ears. And it's very likely that, that the people that experienced this also had some uh, emotional reaction to what happened to them. I, I don't think that uh, anyone can see horrible things or get hurt in, uh, without having, having a serious injury, without having some emotional response to that. So the people that we see in these groups are a mix. Some of them have the, the traumatic brain injury that they have, may be driving their clinical need. In other cases, it may be the physical or mobility issues that are making things um, more difficult for people. It may be cognitive or emotional. All of these things interact to cause function or dysfunction in people. So <clears throat> in some cases, the people with the milder traumatic brain injuries may have uh, other symptoms that are causing them, requiring them to, to have assistance. Um, in, so it's, it's, it, I would say it's a real mix of, of people in the, in the study. On a personal level, I mean, in your your personal opinion, I mean, what would you like to see be the outcome of this study? What would you like to see changed as the outcome of this study? Or what would you like to see happen for caregivers at the outcome of this study? You know, I said a couple of minutes ago that I, I think one of the really unfortunate things is what's probably a gap in communication or advertising. And I, and I, I think, you know, that's something that the DOD and VA needs to work on if people are not getting the message. 
it's, it's a shame if we have a really good program in place to address the needs, which in many cases we do, but people are not finding out about it or not accessing it in the way that they need to. And I think one of the best things that could happen is um, there would be a way of making sure that everyone who feels like they need something like that is getting, um, is getting access to the programs that they want or someone is paying attention to to what their particular needs are. I think one of the difficult transitions for both patients and family members is when people make the, uh, the transition from uh, being in the military to moving to um, care outside the military care system. So every any time there is a transition like that, there is the possibility that there's going to be a gap there. And what we don't want to see is people falling into that gap because, um, you know, that's a vulnerable time right then. And uh, we don't want people to be getting excellent care in the DOD and have the possibility of getting excellent care in the VA, but not being able to make that leap. So I think we have to build that bridge over that gap a little stronger. Um, and I think we really need to enforce the educational piece of this to make sure that people can access the services that are available. So is the study still recruiting and how would people get involved if they were interested in that? Absolutely. So the study is still, uh, still in place. We have uh, an email address that people can access. We have uh, some telephone numbers and we can certainly publicize all of those because we want to make sure that people are interested can participate. We, we get um, requests from a number of people um, who their situation may be slightly different. And in some circumstances, there may be an injury that falls outside of the scope of what we've been mandated to do. We can't include those caregivers in the study, but we nonetheless uh, like hearing about their experiences and what's going on, even if they may not be able to participate directly. We realize that the commitment to doing this, although we're not asking a ton of people, is, uh, you know, is a burden for some people. And uh, under those circumstances, too, uh, we may be interested in talking with you about a way to, to sort of modify um, what, what people can do. Um, the last thing I would point out is that while we worry about people and their access to services, the study itself cannot be a method of treatment for people. So we don't want people to come into the study with the expectation that by being there and being with potentially with peers or tell, talking about the, the situations that they have, that it's going to provide treatment or care for them in terms of that. There, there may be some indirect benefit for people in participating, but the study wasn't designed to provide direct care for individuals that may, that may want to access something. That being said, we, we can uh, often point people in the direction of things if they don't know how to get the care that they want. If you are interested in taking part in the study, feel free to call 855-821-1469 or email caregiver.study at dvbic.org. 
That number and email address, as well as links for more information, can be found in the description of this podcast. Every year, Dybbuk and other brain injury organizations observe Brain Injury Awareness Month in March. This year, we're asking others to help share the word about the month through their social media accounts. Dybbuk works um, 12 months out of the year to conduct research, to provide clinical care support, and to educate and train service members, veterans, family members, healthcare providers about traumatic brain injury. Um, which includes ways to prevent TBI, uh, ways to recognize it if an injury does occur, um, promoting efforts for patients who've sustained a brain injury to get help, um, as well as conducting research on what are the most effective ways to treat it. Brain Injury Awareness Month really gives us an opportunity to focus that message on service members and veterans, their family members who support them, to really translate that knowledge, translate that research that's being done throughout the year, uh, showcase what Dybbuk is doing to support those individuals. So the theme for Brain Age Awareness Month this year is think ahead, uh, be safe, know the signs, and get help. Um, Our main focus of that messaging is for service members and veterans. Um, As caregivers and family members, you already know about traumatic brain injury. Uh, You already know that message to think ahead. Um, Our ask of you this month in particular is to help us to spread that word, help us to uh, increase awareness, to get more recognition for the scope of traumatic brain injuries, what services are available to support caregivers like yourselves um, and the individuals with TBI that you care for. So it's easy for you to be involved in Brain Age Awareness Month. Um, The most direct way that you can help support the effort is by um, taking part in our social media efforts, which you can download our hashtag card for Brain Injury Awareness Month, um, put a message, a personalized message about brain injury, what brain injury means to you, um, what role you play as a caregiver in supporting a service member or veteran with TBI, take a photo of yourself with that hashtag card, put it on your own social media, or post it back to DivBix Ahead for the Future social media um, campaign efforts. So be sure to use the hashtag B-I-A month, that's B-I-A-M-O-N-T-H, and hashtag think ahead. We hope you'll consider helping us spread the word about brain injuries to your friends and family. For more information, please visit divbic.deco.mil. And that's the show. As always, if you have any questions about the podcast, about Dybbuk products or programs, or are interested in telling us your story, please feel free to email us at info at On the next episode, we'll talk about how art is helping to ease the burden for some caregivers. The TBI Family is produced and edited by Terry Welch and is hosted by me, Dr. Scott Livingston. It is a product of the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, commanded by Army Colonel Jeffrey Grammer and the Defense Centers of Excellence for Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury, 
commanded by Navy Captain Mike Colston. Thanks this week to the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center Public Affairs Team, especially Megan Garcia. Thanks also to the Intrepid Center of Excellence, Mickey Galoon and Dr. Lou French. And finally, thanks to Spencer Burgos, who helped us out with the Brain Age Awareness Month story and leads the social media effort for DibBix Ahead for the Future campaign. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.